Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Moniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. If you are within the sound of my voice and you are listening to this live, thank you so much. Can I ask you to walk on over, type out beenawake.com into your browser window. Make sure you subscribe with my email address, or with your email address, I should say. I already have mine. You know, let's talk a little bit about why... I want your email address before I go into any of the pieces today that I that I wrote over at beenawake.com. Four great pieces of content for you, the dutiful listener. I, you know, there's a, um, in the broader liberty space, there is a conversation that occurs. Um, Warning. Oops. There is a conversation that occurs quite frequently. And that conversation goes something like this. Where should we actually be living quote unquote online? Should we be on these platforms that have been around for a while, like YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and so on, that are also engaged in heavy censorship of information and people? We're going to talk a little bit about censorship today in one of the pieces. Is that, is that where we should be? Should we be on these popular platforms or should we be making our own space on alternative platforms? And I would say here is my answer to that question. Um, you know, we talk, I talk about this and it's hard to face evil. So in, in short, my, back, my main method of distribution is my Substack. So if you are not subscribed to the Substack, you are not in turn getting the best sense making that you can. Uh, whether you sign up for free or if you want to take advantage of the lifetime discount that I'm offering for anybody who signs up before the one year anniversary of beenawake.com, Whichever one you do, that I, I'm very grateful to both. But that is my main method of distribution. So to the extent that I am on a platform like Twitter or Instagram, which I'm on both, um, you can find me at DLB Muniz. You can also find me at DLB Muniz on pretty much on, on most of the major alternative platforms. I just don't post there very often. Why? For two reasons. One, I have uh, you know, a software that, that lets me auto-post to places like Instagram and Twitter, so I don't have to think as much about putting out quotes or new pieces of content that I come up with. Um, so that's, that's number one. Number two, and, and, and in turn, the software doesn't let me yet you know, post to those other platforms on a regular basis. And, and number two, the fact of the matter is I get more engagement. You know, I've gotten more engagement spending time on Twitter than I, have spent, than I had spending time on other platforms. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe I should pop back into me. It's been a bit, but, but that's at least, that's at least how I look at the situation is I'd rather be where the people are and work to make sure that I don't work to make sure that I walk the line of not getting banned. And by the way, I completely recognize that that's not enough, right? It's not enough to walk the line because if you cross somebody, you can still get taken out. So, you know, that's, but that's basically it's why not? Because this is where everybody is. Um, that doesn't mean you can't, you shouldn't go out there and stake, you know, onto other platforms. And I'm sure other people are better at it than me, but frankly, I am not the best at social media. What I am good at is sense-making writing and doing this show. So, you know, 
a little bit of little bit of growth, a little bit of learning, a little bit of everything that we're trying to do here. So let's talk about my black hat. This is just a fun little piece that I wrote um, this week. And late last year, I had to retire my work hat, which was the hat that I'd worn, you know, most days. That which was the hat that I had worn most days um, to go to work. It was an old beat up camo hat. And I am, uh, well, how should I say this? I'm not a camo guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I am not the biggest camo guy in the world. I don't really, that, that, that was literally the first piece of, um, that was literally the, the first piece of camo that I had ever like worn, I think in my life with the exception of actual ACUs or BDUs for, you know, junior army stuff that I did when I was in high school. So, you know, that was so other than that, like for official reasons, I had never really worn camo. So I had this camo hat and I wore it every single day and people would recognize me by being in the hat. Um, and I would wear it to my customers because I would always have hat hair. I always have hat hair, not from wearing a baseball cap, mind you, but from wearing a hard hat. So it's very difficult to keep a nicely coiffed head of hair, uh, especially if your hair is a little curly like mine is with um, <laughs> when you wear a hard hat. So I would wear, you know, so I like, I like a good baseball cap. It helps me. It, it's, it's just a nice thing to wear. Uh, so it's also worth noting that I embraced minimalism in my wardrobe over the last couple of years. And while my closet used to look like a Brooks Brothers Easter egg catalog, it now only has the colors black, white, blue, and gray. This only matters because of the replacement hat that I bought for my, you know, for my work hat. Uh, I wanted something simple, uh, something with no logo. And most importantly, I didn't want to spend a lot of money for something that would get filthy dirty as the, my work clothes tend to. So I found a $7.50 hat, $7.50 hat on Amazon that's literally just a plain ball cap that's black. And I've been wearing it for a couple of months now. And what's very interesting is the feedback that I've gotten from coworkers and family members alike. One of the running jokes is that I look like a terrorist. Depending on the day of the week, I'm either a 2001 terrorist or a 2021 terrorist, which is to say they'll either, you know, because I have a big beard, they'll say I'm like a Muslim terrorist or they'll say I'm, you know, one of those dirty right wingers that that are soon to be in, uh, that, you know, the um, the terrorism that Joe Biden thinks we should care about. Oops, microphone fell. Now, the joking, of course, is all in good fun. Um, not, none of this should be taken seriously. And if you're not somebody who can understand that as a joke, then you probably won't like my content. But hey, stick around. Maybe you will. Um, so the joking, the joking is all in good fun, but it got me thinking why people I worked with and interacted with on a regular basis were reacting so viscerally and verbally to my new hat, right? Because literally, if you go on to benawake.com, and I'll share the screen again for anybody, uh, anybody watching this. Um, if you go to pinawake.com and you look at it, this really is just a plain black hat. Uh, you know, now that I'm doing video a little bit more, you'll notice that I tend to just do a black background. I'm wearing a black shirt. I just have the accent color of pink because I like the color pink. Um, so it's, it's literally just a plain black baseball hat. And people really, 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 really uh, react to it, which I've have found interesting. And in fact, has made me want to keep wearing the hat as opposed to not wearing the hat. But that's just a little, that might just be a little insight into who I am as a person. 
there's an obvious now. So I thought about, I'm trying to think about why these people are reacting so viscerally to my new hat. And there was an obvious interruption, right? When I switched from one kind of hat to the other around this time, I also got a few new work shirts that are just Carhartt dressed down, you know, button down dress shirts that are stain resistant. And I get, you know, it's, I have a dirty job at times. So there was the obvious interruption of switching from the camo hat to this hat. But even after that time has subsided, right, it's been a couple of months since I retired. It's been six months now almost since I've retired the camo hat. And it's only been, you know, and, and it's only been, a, and it's been a couple of months of wearing this hat. So people are still, and people are still making jokes. So there's a thought that I found as, as I put in the piece that I found tickling. So I'd like to share it with you. I think one of the reasons that many people are reacting verbally to this particular piece of my wardrobe is precisely because it is ambiguous. It is because a plain black hat doesn't mean anything that people want to generate some kind of meaning for it. As our mind processes raw data, here's, here's my conception of this at the very least. As our mind is processing raw data, it looks for boxes to put things in. Given that the hat I bought is reminiscent of what a paramilitary hit squad would wear in an episode of Burn Notice, I get how people make the connections that they do. Now, in the piece, I asked if there was a point and does there have to be a point? Um, there's a, there actually are a few points. I just didn't feel like typing them out when I was writing the story. The first one is how people react. It, 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 well, the first part is exactly what I said. It's interesting how people react to, to nothing, literally nothing. Right. It's, but it's also the juxtaposition of a black hat and a black shirt. And when I'm wearing my sunglasses, that people really make comments. The other interesting thing about this has to do with um, what did I say here about the way that the brain processes information? And this is uh, this is one of my favorite pieces. Um, this is something I've been saying for a long time, and I really find it helpful. And hopefully you do, too, which is this idea. There is this concept that we have as human beings that says we should think outside the box. Um, that we should be thinking outside the box. And if we're thinking outside of the box, then that means we're going to find a better answer. Here's the thing. I don't believe that there is outside of the box. There is just other boxes to go and think in. This is why I talk about schools of thought and why I ask people what schools of thought they identify with. Anybody who you, you'll see this actually manifested on places like Twitter or if you're talking to friends and family as well. There is a certain sect of person who has a reasonable level of intelligence, but who hasn't necessarily done the extra work to put themselves in a camp or recognize the information that they're given or the opinions that are being assigned to them, as Scott Horton would say about the media. You're not Scott Horton, excuse me, Scott Adams. A lot of smart Scots come to think of it. Scott Adams talks about how your opinion can be assigned to you by the media, depending on what you, uh, depending on what side you are on. Um, and in the premium content that I'm going to be releasing, which you can either stay tuned and check out live right now, or if you're listening to the replay, you can go to beenawake.com slash subscribe and sign up for a lifetime discount. Uh, I'm going to be reading a little bit of William James's pragmatism, and I thought, as I was re-listening to my episode with James Jenneman, I thought it would be a good idea for me to refresh myself on some of the, the tenets of pragmatism, and I thought it might be fun to read with the audience. So we're going, to be, we're going to be going over a little bit of this idea. But you don't have outside of the box. You just have other boxes. 
And there's nothing. And so you can think outside of the box, right? In the sense that if there is one way, if your company or your business or your family thinks in terms of A, you can find B box. And if you can find the B box and you can think and, and you can operate inside of that framework, you might come to a greater understanding as a result. If you do, that's a good thing, right? And I think this is actually the spirit of thinking outside of the box. What that means is to not be trapped. I just am adding that extra layer on because I find it very helpful to kind of conceptualize what we actually, um, how we actually act and, and literally think in the world. I don't, I'm not one of these people who, like I said, there's this certain kind of person that will put themselves in a position to say, well, I just think for myself, you see, you're a, you know, you're just an ideological so-and-so and I just think for myself and it's like, okay, but chances are it's twofold. Chances are you're well, no, not even twofold. Chances are you are going to fall into one of the dominant schools of thought that operate within, let's say American, the United States of America at the moment. Right. And that, and that sense of thought, it could come from your religious upbringing. It could come from your public schooling. It could come from your Marxist professor. Um, it could come from your libertarian professor, right? If you were one of the lucky, if you were lucky enough to have one of those. And you in turn, uh, you in turn might think that you came up with something unique that actually, and this just happened to me as I was reading over the piece of William James that I'm going to read later. This just happened to me. I'm like, oh, so that's so, so. You know, there is nothing new under the sun, as I'm fond of saying. And I was just reading something and, and, and the guy and 100 years ago, they were saying what I'm trying to what I'm trying to say now and push out, which is that a lot of times political manifestation manifestations of differences in political opinion are often oftentimes the results of psychological temperaments. So apparently William James said that 100 years ago and. Uh, <laughs> and, and here we are. So anyway, I hope you guys, uh, it's it, just a little piece. We're trying to get back into the swing of things. And uh, as far as writing and this live streaming thing, hopefully this works out and you guys enjoy it. So if you're a normal podcast listener, you can come join me on Saturday mornings. I will take questions. Um, and of course, if you are a premium subscriber, you can send me questions and I will answer them any time of day. So let's talk about this piece. The choice is yours. Learn from or ignore the great Scott Horton. Um, I was planning to share another video of Scott Horton where he was at the Libertar Libertarian Party Mises Caucus events in Pennsylvania, but then he went on Tim Pool. And so I watched the whole thing live and it was very, very good. If you want an introduction to a school of American thought you never knew existed, Scott Horton is one of the few men up to the task. Much of what you'll hear him say, if you are and pardon the and pardon the terminology, but if you are what many people would refer to as a normie, right? If you were one of these people who, you know, if you're just a kind of run of the mill uh, American who pays attention to, you know, CBS, Fox News, CNN, you're a busy guy or gal. You've got a family. You have commitments. This really isn't your repertoire, um, and you just kind of pay attention to what the general consensus is of what is, you know, the opinions that are assigned to you by the corporate press. When you listen to somebody like Scott Horton, he will sound absolutely crazy. He will. And I'm giving you, by the way, if you're listening to this, I am giving you permission to think that Scott Horton is a little bit crazy. It's entirely fine. Go ahead. But do me a favor. Because we're talking about, um, but, but, we're, but we're talking about finding ourselves in different boxes. Give his way of thinking a little bit of time. 
or go read one of his books. It was very fun, um, you know, with the with one of the group chats that I'm in where people are posting the YouTube comments on Tim Pool's channel. And I and I like Tim Pool. Um, I've I've criticized some some aspects of his uh, of his show. I don't I, I watch I, I keep up with him. I don't necessarily watch every single night, but, um, you know, he's obviously operating in the space and doing a much better job and doing a great job and has made a very good name for himself. Um, but his audience kind of as a result of the type of, of the type of news that he covers tends to swing very normative in the foreign policy range. So it's very interesting. Like there's this, there's this idea that's been, that's been batting around in my head recently. And it sounds, it sounds stupid. It's one of those ideas that sounds really stupid. It's like, it's, it's just a sentence and it sounds really stupid until you kind of keep applying it to situations and it gets smarter as time goes on. And, and that sentence is this. There are a lot of things happening at once in any news story. There are a lot of things happening at once in any story that you read. This is part of the reason for my conception of the paradox of identity. And this is also why somebody like a Tim Pool, who might be really, really good on domestic cultural issues, doesn't ha- isn't, isn't, as, um, isn't as educated um, as somebody like Scott Horton on foreign cultural issues and, and on foreign policy questions, more importantly. So Scott Horton, if you don't know, he, he's the editorial director at antiwar.com. You can go to Scott Horton's show, and he does the anti-war thing better than I think anybody else on this living, I should say, on this planet. There were, of course, uh, predecessors to him who did a very good job as well. And if you are coming, you know, like if you're coming from more of a Fox News or a CNN background for your normal news digest and for your normal news, uh, like the news that you consume, you are going to look at Scott Horton like he's like he's nuts. You will, because he's what he is saying is the exact opposite opinion you're supposed to hold. Here's the crazy thing. The more you listen to him, the more you listen to him, the more what he says actually makes sense. And there are far more footnotes to support what he has to say. And moreover, once you really bring yourself into the anti-war libertarian mindset, the, your predictive power is it, it increases tenfold. You will be able to look at stories that deal with foreign policy and predict with pretty high degrees of certainty how the various corporate press outlets are going to react to it. I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty, uh, a pretty fascinating thing. Um, it's a pretty fascinating thing that you can actually start to predict what people are going to say on big outlets like CNN, uh, ABC News, NBC, so on and so forth. But I did write a little thing here, just kind of in the aftermath of, of examining to it. And I think this is maybe what makes me different than some other creators in the Liberty space who are all awesome. Um, what makes me a little bit different is that I'm still concerned with trying to reach a regular audience, right? It's, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not as concerned. Um, I'm not somebody who's doing a show just for people who have read all of human action, all of power, you know, all of, all of Rothbard's work, 
all of Bastiat, all of that. I'm trying to put all of my content should be something that you could share with your grandma, with your dad, with your brother, if they were open to a different set of ideas. It should be it should be something that you can share with a large group, a large swath of the population, and people can read it, understand it, maybe not agree with everything, but at least see the logic of my position. So I don't always write for the in-group. My pinned tweet right now is that Twitter is constant in-group signaling that the out-group sees. And this is a problem in the sense that you still want to be able to have communications across in-groups. And by the way, I think it's completely coherent to say that multiple in-groups are going to exist within a given society and even within a given culture, right? And you, can, you could arguably say that a culture is going to be a smaller unit than a society, and a society is going to be a smaller unit than civilization. This is a schema of culture that I've kind of worked out in my mind. And culture, and this is what I, now I go back to what I said, that dumb thing I said before, the thing that sounded dumb but really isn't, that dumb thing I said before was what? In any news story, there are a lot of things happening at once. There are multiple levels of perception, multiple levels of information and perception that go all the way up, go up this chain from the individual to the small group, to the culture, to the society, to the civilization, starting if you want, even at like a biological or a medical level. These things all exist within any given news story within any given situation that occurs in, um, in society. And, that's, and that doesn't mean that we can't make sense of things. It just means let's recognize the fact that any given story might be more complicated. As I've written on the pages of beenawake.com, there is always more to say about a story. And so if, you know, again, I, I love Scott Horton's work. He has influenced me a lot and given me... Um, the arguments and the understanding to really recognize the tragedy and the evil that is the U.S. foreign policy system. But I wrote a little note here to my fellow anti-war libertarians. I think that some of you should be reminded about the difference between the rulers and the ruled. Libertarians, as a rule, are far more concerned with understanding and having a consistent worldview than the average person. This isn't controversial in, in our space. Allow me to remind you, most people do and think what they're told. This goes for libertarians as well, by the way. We just tend to have better answers to a situation. So, you know, if somebody, if somebody is a libertarian who's doing what they're told, as a libertarian, they're just going to have better answers than somebody who's not. If you believe, if you're somebody who believes that cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias only affect the ideological other, you are sorely mistaken. This is a common, this is a common thread in, um, this is a common thread in, in, in binary politics and binary political rhetoric, right? We have the answers, but they are just suffering from confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance. No, of course, the last thing I am is a libertarian. There are many things that create who I am before I actually come to some sort of political identity. And the same would go for any other individual. Therefore, Cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias is a human condition, and all humans would suffer from it. And it only takes it, it requires a lot of effort and work to be able to attempt, not even overcome, to attempt to overcome these natural inclinations. 
the rulers are so let's so here's the refresher the rulers are the blood-soaked monsters who have spent incalculable amounts of wealth from everyday people to you know wage wars the ruled have been led to believe their whole lives the war on terror is just and noble i don't take a random pro-war or pro-israel position so here here's here here here's the piece that's a little bit different from what from most of what you'd probably hear right now i don't take a random pro-war or pro-israel position from a member of the ruled class as being one that is thought out and you shouldn't either meeting people where they are is a key element of influence and someone like scott horton actually demonstrates very well how to have a principled stance without sounding like an ass let's go back to twitter for a second constant in-group signaling that the out-group sees there is a, I'm sure, mil- there are millions of tweets sent out every single day. There are millions of tweets sent out every single day that go along this line, I am sure, because I see them on a fairly recent, fairly regular basis. Oh, man, you know, I'm kind of interested in such and such an ideology, but man, those such and such, a, those, those people that are part of such and such ideology are just so mean. So I'm just not going to pay attention to them. Right. And why is that? Because once you reach a certain level of understanding, when somebody is behind you, right? When some or below you, however you want to conceptualize this. So you know, think let's 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 use below because a ladder makes a lot of sense. So in any given school of thought, there is both. This also feeds into the paradox of identity. By the way, there is both a lower and a higher understanding. We see this implemented in religion, in politics, in science, in biology, in chemistry, so on and so forth, in sales. In pretty much any field you can imagine, there is simultaneously a lower and a higher perception of things. And there is a point within that that you can operate as whatever this ladder represents, whatever school of thought this ladder represents, whatever whatever career path this ladder represents. There is a point where you can operate, but there are still, pe- there are still going to be people above you and people below you. Now, let's take for a second... Let's take this idea of regulatory capture that often occurs with major corporations. And we're going to bring this back to we're going to bring this back to what we were what we're discussing. So it's very well understood that a bigger the the bigger a company becomes, the more likely they are to support draconian and very tough government regulations, especially here in the United States with the federal government. Why? Because they have the funds available to uh, comply with the regulatory demands. So this is one of the reasons why a place like Walmart is going to support a $15 minimum wage and a place like Amazon is going to support a $15 minimum wage. Because in effect, anybody who can't afford that minimum wage is removed from the marketplace immediately. And, and guess who gets to help write the regulations? Well, it's the big company. So effectively, it is part of your self-interest at a certain point to want to close the door behind you. If you, you know, if you, if you get big enough because you want to maximize your profits, you want to maximize your business. Well, there is a, this happens in a given in-group. This happens in a given school of thought as well. Now, of course, it's a lot tougher to close the door. We might imagine that it's a set of beads that people want to just put a bar over or something like that. But there is, um, there is this thing that can happen and we're all guilty of this, myself included. Uh, there is this, it's, I call it, I don't, I haven't quite determined what to call it, but it's, um, it's kind of like the bathroom problem. Do you have a public restroom, right? Do you, it's, if you ever have worked in a store, a mall, 
so on and so forth, a restaurant, somebody may have come into the restaurant and asked if you had a public restroom. And you would have had to have said, or asked just like where a restroom was if it was a mall. This would happen to me a great deal. And there is this thing that happens where this might be the first time this person has ever visited your store. You have never met them before. And yet you treat them the way you do the 15 other people who, but you, or excuse me, but you as the individual inside of the store have told 15 other people where the bathroom was and that you don't have a public restroom. So what do you do? You get a little bit upset. You get a little bit upset with the people for asking you where the restroom is, even though they are coming to you in earnest and they don't understand why you are getting so upset. Well, the same thing happens in a school of thought. The same thing happens within any given ideology, especially in the political ideology as well. This, this happens pretty frequently. You'll even, see, you'll even see some creators talking about it. It's like, oh, well, I'm not doing the 101 stuff. And that's fair, by the way. There comes a point probably where you want to graduate from the 101. But it's important to remember that there are always, at any point in time, people who are behind you. If for no other reason, then people are born every single day and there are going to be people younger than you and the people younger than you aren't going to know as much as you. You see? This is a question of mindset and a matter of openness. And if you do it right, and if I do it right, you tend to be able to be a better spokesperson for a set of ideas than somebody who is more concerned with in-group signaling. Because if you're only concerned with in-group signaling, you can just make your buddies laugh who have all been doing this for 10, 15 years, let's say. Now, we all have moments of weakness. There, and there are times where it is funny to make fun of people who don't know as much as you. I'm not like, I'm not, this isn't a, uh, this isn't a moral stance that I'm taking. This is a very practical, pragmatic way of looking at how people come into schools of thought. And listen, if you're a creator and you're not interested in doing this kind of work, that's fine. Send the newbies my way because that is what I'm trying to do. I'd like to think that uh, people who are at different levels of understanding can access my work in such a way that is entertaining and can, you know, help them learn a little bit more about a different way of thinking. So, and, and again, Scott Horton is somebody else who does this very, very well. And when, and even if you think he sounds a little bit crazy, there's always footnotes to what he says so that everything he says is sourced and you can actually go and read. And this is another, this again is why I don't deal in conspiracies is because all of this stuff is actually out there at all times. when he doesn't sound like an ass, right? So again, you can come off as an ass if you're more concerned with in-group signaling than you are with trying to reach an understanding with somebody who may be lower down, lower on the ladder or on a different ladder than you, again, for the, for the sake of the metaphor. And give it, and remember, again, that our brains are processing information and trying to put people into boxes and trying to put ideas and things into boxes that we already have. And as long as we can put something into a box, then we can understand it. Once we can understand it, we can kind of move past. And we can categorize things inefficiently or incorrectly many times. This is just part of what it is to be human is to err. And, is, and provided we and provided our brains, the, the more fine-tuned our brains are to sense-making, the easier it is going to be for us to properly categorize things. Yes, this is why you should subscribe to my show. So let's say Scott Horton doesn't come off like an ass. They're going to put him in the, next, in the next box that they can, which is the crazy box, because that's what we've been programmed to do. 
and probably a lot of the people listening to this show have been able to overcome that programming. But that doesn't change the fact that that's what people, that that is how most people view things, even, and this is the most successful, this is the most important part, even successful people. And by the way, even people who are trained to look for these sorts of things can still fall victim to the same traps of the mind. Because we're apes, because we're just these like inefficient creatures. I don't know. I think it's an interesting, I think, I think this stuff is fascinating to think about. How we, how even people who are otherwise very intelligent, otherwise very well read, otherwise very keen on the way you can manipulate behavior, there are still those pe- those types of people who will call somebody like a Scott Horton crazy or call somebody like me a conspiracist. Words like crazy, dictator, democracy, conspiracy, racist, bigot, and so on, are deployed as a me- as a method of social control. If you engage with somebody about ideas and they can put you into one of those boxes for any reason, they can and they will disregard you. And as frustrating as I find it, I can't blame them for following the rules that they've been taught. For me, then, the challenge is to subvert and short circuit these heuristics that are built up over time. Not everybody, not everyone will listen, but anything worthwhile does take time and effort. So that's something, again, that's what I mean to say. I do try to write for a broad audience, even if it is um, not what they're used to consuming, because I'm interested in subverting and short-circuiting the paradigm. Let's check out this hot leak. Of course, this is, you know, I'm recording this on a Saturday. So for whatever reason, you haven't been paying attention to the news this week. There is a, um, we are starting to see how, in, you know, this is this is a good example for real time. This is something that I've noticed for a long time. And now that I have a show, I can share it with you. But there is on a long enough time frame, every, all the everything is revealed. On a long enough time frame, everything is revealed. This is how the major sense-making organs of the of of the current ruling class operates. Right. This is why you can look up um, things like Operation Paperclip, Operation uh, Mockingbird, so on. Um, uh, what is it? MZK, MDK, something ultra, something, something, something ultra. You know, when the CIA was actively just dosing random citizens with things like LSD. There's a reason why you can go and look up all those case files right now. MK Ultra, that's what it was called. And there are books written about it. And, you know, all these horrible things. This is why you can go and you can see the fact that uh, so and whoever that guy, whoever that reporter was for the New York Times was lying about communism in the Holodomor in the Ukraine, in Ukraine. On a long enough time scale, they are willing to rectify and fix the narrative. This is something that um, this is something that people will kind of point this is something that people who are inside of the cathedral as it were this is something that they can use to justify their belief in the cathedral right and just so we're clear if you haven't heard this before the cathedral is this conception of the unholy alliance if you will between universities media outlets and the governments and you can include hollywood and big tech companies in there as well if you'd like so Given that, so if you're inside of it, it's like, well, you know, on a, on a long enough time frame, everything everything comes out, and we're seeing this happen in real time right now with the lab leak hypothesis. And there probably has been, other than the wars, 
other than America's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the war and the larger war on terror, there is probably not another news story that has affected. There's probably not another news story that has affected more people than than the obvious effects that COVID-19 has had on the broader society and the subsequent government lockdowns. So, which is to say, everybody is looking for answers on this. And so you can witness in real time what they will be doing to make sure that they can maintain their control. And what are they doing? Well, if you recall, if you were paying attention about a year ago, you probably had heard, and if certainly if you were talking to me a year ago, you had heard something about a lab leak hypothesis. And the lab leak hypothesis is that given the fact that there is the, inst- the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, China, right next to this supposed wet market, that it is possible a virus could escape from such a place. Right there, it is possible that uh, this is all. This is all the claim is. This is what a hypothesis is, and it needs to be proven. It is possible that that a um, that a virus could have escaped from this facility, and that is actually what we are dealing with. At the time, we were supposed to believe that like a pangolin was the reason for it. A pangolin, which is like some, and bats were the reason for it, and this only developed naturally, and it had something to do with this wet market, and that's why we are now. That's why the entire world is now shutting down, is because of this small wet market, or this this big wet market in Wuhan, China, right across the street from a virology institute. Somebody like Brett Weinstein, who is kind of part of an alternative sense making network, right? He's one of the people who introduced me to the idea of sense making, and him and his wife. Dr. Heather Hine have been operating independently for a few years now, and they get to bring their biological expertise to these current event issues. And they give a lot of very interesting, um, a a lot of very interesting uh, perspective around it. They have been talking about the lab leak hypothesis since the outbreak of the virus. And they have been talking and, and Brett has been, I believe, if I am wrong, then I am wrong. But I don't think I am. Brett has been saying pretty consistently that that it's a, there's a large possibility that that there is a lab leak hypothesis that that that, that this was a, actually a, a matter of some sort of uh, virus escaping from a lab versus this happening one happening one hundred percent naturally. Now that doesn't really work within a political binary, does it? Because see, a binary is either or; it is one thing or the other. There, that's the difference between a binary and dualism, is at least as far as I conceptualize the words. The difference between a binary and a dualism is that binary is one or zero. There is nothing in between. And so if the, right, if the people who are giving the right opinions say that it is one, it cannot be zero. And it can't be anything in between zero, even though we all know that there are infinite amounts of numbers between one and zero. That's such as such as the nature of mathematics, right? There are infinite numbers between one and zero, such that anything could happen in between those two things. That that to me is kind of what dual how I how I work out the idea of dualism. By the way, is that we have two ideas, we try to walk the line, and we try to come to some sort of sense of things as a result. So, given that this corporate press and all the important uh, all the important people in government were saying that there was no possible way that this could have developed from a lab, and the important people include the World Health Organization, who was run by a communist, and the Chinese government, who is communist as well, which is never something we should forget. 
given the fact that they were saying that it was natural, there could be no room for disagreement because we don't live in a healthy, open society. That's over. It's over. It doesn't exist anymore. I, I, have, I really don't think that the United States of America, as it has existed for the last hundred years, because you kind of have to, there's kind of, we're, I think we're on the third or fourth iteration of the United States of America. The first one basically lasts until the Civil War. Then you have the Civil War till, if you'd like, the War on Terror. And now we are just, now we are just seeing the acceleration of what was put in place after the fall of the Soviet Union, really. So kind of that in-between phrase, that in-between phase of the end of the Soviet Union and the beginning of the terror war essentially sets up the type of America that we live in today. And as a consequence of technological advancement, we are just seeing those trends accelerate. So what happened? There have been many changing narratives over the last few weeks of where the pandemic where the pandemic is involved. The CDC has rendered mask wearing moot, cheer for that. Members of Congress led by Thomas Massey have revolted against House rules on mask wearing that according to him were only enforced when members were on television. Rand Paul has decided to put a major target on his back by publicly declining to receive his shots. And now, apparently, it's okay to discuss this lab leak hypothesis. Let's talk about last May, at the height of the lockdowns, when everyone was attempting to understand and make sense of what was happening, one man took center stage, Dr. Anthony Fauci. In May of 2020, he had this to say in National Geographic. Fauci shot down the discussion that had been raging among politicians and pundits, calling it a circular argument in a conversation Monday with National Geographic. This is quoting Dr. Fauci in May of last year. If you look at the evolution of the virus in bats and what's out there now, the scientific evidence is very, very strongly leaning towards this could not have been artificially or deliberately manipulated. Everything about the stepwise evolution over time strongly indicates that this virus evolved in nature and then jumped species, Fauci said. Based on the scientific evidence, he also doesn't entertain an alternate theory that someone found the coronavirus in the wild, brought it to a lab, and then had accidentally escaped. Over the weekend, over a year later, Fauci had this to say. At an event earlier this month, PolitiFact's Katie Sanders noted that there is still, quote, a lot of cloudiness around the origins of COVID-19 and asked Fauci if he is still, quote, still confident that it develops naturally. According to footage of the event, which was resurfaced by Fox News on Sunday, no, actually, Fauci said at the United Facts of America, a festival of fact-checking event. Oh, Jesus Christ, that's a mouthful. I'm not convinced about that, he added. I think we should continue to investigate what went on in China until we continue to find out to the best of our ability what happened. God, isn't the guy such a snake the way he talks? Whatever. Sorry, that's an, that's an aside. He continued. Certainly, the people who have investigated it say it was likely say, say it was likely the emergence from an animal reservoir that, the, that then infected individuals. But it could have been something else, and we need to find that out. So, you know, that's the reason why I say I'm perfectly in favor of any investigation that looks into the origin of the virus. Now, Dr. Fauci, this is me speaking. Now, Dr. Fauci is an adept enough public speaker to always allow himself rhetorical wiggle room. If someone who didn't like me were to read this piece, they would obviously point out that scientific evidence can change. And given that Fauci is a scientist, he would naturally follow the data wherever it led him. Of course, we know this isn't entirely ac accurate. Whatever scientific credentials he may have, Fauci is a government operative, and it is far safer to assume he would act like a bureaucrat defending his, his, defending his institution and power as opposed to a scientist searching for the truth. 
the lab leak hypothesis has been an appropriate avenue of exploration. And much to the chagrin of the corporate press, there have been people like Brett Weinstein, who I was discussing before, who have made it a point to explore the hypothesis outside of the Overton window. An expansion in that allowable opinion is exactly what we are witnessing at the moment. So will it work is the question. An Aristotle quote that hangs in my living room reads, it is the mark of an educated mind to entertain a thought without accepting it. There is little doubt in my mind, we as a country, if not a species, will spend the next years examining what actually caused the pandemic to occur and, occur, excuse me, and how the virus originated. A year ago, it did not serve the interests of Fauci and others to have the lab leak hypothesis be a part of the national narrative. Now that the height of hysteria has ceased and most of his followers have received their pokes, the narrative can expand. You understand? So this, the, the, the conditions are sufficient now. And in fact, they, they in, in fact, they have no choice given, given the, um, just given the reality of the situation, there is little doubt in my mind that, um, that we are seeing this narrative can ex- that, that, that this narrative can expand. There are already enough people who are adherents of Dr. Fauci and the, and the larger CDC WHO narrative that's been put out there. There are those of us who are not exactly within that narrative. And, you know, we are getting kicked, you know, people like that get kicked off of Twitter and Facebook and so on consistently. So you can allow the narrative to expand. So now it is okay for the good people in the world to think a little bit more about the origins of the virus. And then in a couple of years, you might learn that the virus was actually found in nature, brought to the lab, performed gain of function research that was in fact, that was in fact funded at least in part by, by American sources and that this is what actually got out. It wouldn't surprise me if we learned that in like 10 years. Why? Because we started a war on far less evidence, right? The war in Iraq was stated that we were going in there to, to remove WMDs from Saddam Hussein because he was about to use them against like the Kurds or somebody else in his, in his, uh, in his country. It was thought that Saddam Hussein was giving weapons of mass destruction to Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda was going to bomb us yet again. And then what do we learn? We learned that there really were no weapons of mass destruction. Any of the weapons of mass destruction that did exist in Iraq were ones given to them by the U.S. government nearly 20 years before. And this, to go back to the piece that we just talked about, is exactly why you should listen to somebody like Scott Horton. Because he lays this out, he lays this sort of thing out succinctly in his books. Let's imagine for a moment that someone like Fauci, Fauci operates earnestly. He still would be wise to measure what he says against a public relations or propaganda background. Why? Because without the use of propaganda, he and others in his institution, like government, wouldn't be able to assert their control over others, and that's what a bureaucrat wants. So even if somebody like Fauci is 100% honest in everything he says, which I don't believe, but I will put out there for the sake of argument, he would still be, um, he, in order to be effective, he would have to rely on methods of social control as we find in public relations and propaganda. But I repeat myself. Last piece of the week, it's hard to face evil or the philosophy of incentive. This was, a, this, was, this was a tougher piece to write. I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, I'm going to write a little bit on it, and the next thing I know, it's 700 words. So that's, that's kind of what, what happened here. I think trauma is both overused and undervalued in our day. It is undervalued in that many people cheapen or diminish the impact and validity of trauma 
and it is overused and that some will fashion trauma into some kind of accessory to carry with them. This is just my sense of things. I'm not pretending to be a final authority. I was listening to an interview recently between Michael Malice and Eliza Blue, which you can find at the bottom of this article. They covered the scourge that is human trafficking and child pornography that exists right now on platforms like Twitter. My thoughts ranged from murderous rage to thoughtful introspection, and I'd like to think this piece will be a combination of both. Many ideologies reject the premise that a human nature exists. As a consequence of this, their adherents refuse to accept the concept of trade-offs, incentive structures, hierarchy, and so on. It is not enough to point out the obvious, that human beings respond to incentives for people to change their minds. Ignorance is bliss. And when faced with evil behavior, most will choose to ignore the enormity of a problem like human trafficking in a world that rejects slavery. Oof, man, that wasn't, that wasn't very clear. The enormity of a problem like human trafficking in a world that rejects slavery lends itself to this. And I think if we attack this idea sideways, it might help us understand, right? It, we, it might help you understand the point that ignorance is bliss and that most people will turn their face away from evil if they are faced with it. And in fact, that's largely in many respects a coping mechanism. The war on drugs is the linchpin of the progressive ethos. To admit the war on drugs is a failure is to admit American progressivism is a morally bankrupt ideology. But I digress. One thing that the critics of the war on drugs will rightly point out is the incentive problem that exists. It goes something like this. If police officers, detectives, and prosecutors are to be measured by the number of arrests, closed cases, and convictions they achieve, they are incentivized to in investigate and prosecute an easy-to-prove drug crime like possession, and less incentivized to pursue hard and, and 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 less incentivized to pursue harder-to-prove crimes like murder, rape, and theft. Even worse, the war on drugs allows them to use civil asset forfeiture to steal money and property from people suspected of a crime. Suspected of a crime. By contrast, a murder conviction merely removes a criminal from the street. There is therefore a direct incentive in place for the so-called justice system to prosecute petty crimes that pay out versus serious crimes that only cost the state money. Let's make sure we are clear on the main points there because we're trying to attack this idea of it's tough to face evil sideways. And we see this manifested in the drug war. And we see this manifested in the drug war by the fact that it is far easier. Let's say, let's say you're a police officer and you pull someone over and they have a little bit of pot or a little bit of cocaine on them. And they have it right there. That's the evidence. It can be put into trial. They are guilty of a crime. Therefore, they can be convicted or at the very least pled out. So that means all the way up the chain from the officer making the arrest, from the detective doing the investigation to the prosecutor going in front of a judge. All of those people get to win in that situation, and they get to win at a low cost. There's not a lot of work that has to be done if you already found the, if you already found the drugs on a person, and, and, it, and the law says if there are drugs on a person, they have to go to jail. And this is a natural part of how we respond to incentive structures, the philosophy of incentivism kind of trying to lay out here. Moreover, especially as it relates to drug crimes, oftentimes the state largely speaking, will profit off of, a off of investigating a drug crime, right? You know, you have uh, police departments that get car, that, that, can, that impound cars that drug dealers have. They take property that drug dealers have. They take the cash that drug dealers have. Where do you think that all goes? 
that all goes into like their discretionary fund. It's how they can continue to buy the equipment that they use to oppress us. And it, this is this is baked into the system. This is the full. This is the natural flow of the philosophy. Is why wouldn't you, if if everything is a crime, if both of these things are crimes, right? If it is both a crime to murder somebody, and if it is both a crime to to charge somebody with possession, and if you get somebody with possession, you can actually take their money. You can enrich yourself. Whereas investigating a crime like a murder or a rape is only going to cost thing is only going to cost the state money. What would you choose in that situation? Because you're a human being responding to the incentive structure put in place. Of course, it is more likely that you are going to choose, or it is more likely that you are going to convict more people of drug possession because it is an easier thing to convict. It has a lower cost and in fact can profit you versus investigating and and versus investigating somebody who um, who's committed a murder, which is which is a heinous crime. And the same thing would go in this case for traffickers and people who people who would um, would abuse children like this. As I've been interacting with my fellow content creators and paying more attention to what happens on a platform like Twitter. It is always unsettling to learn that someone I know has received a ban or suspension for taking a controversial stance or making a joke. If you do not accept or comply with the accepted narrative handed to us by press outlets and tech giants, you are the equivalent of a soldier who finds himself behind enemy lines. Let's stay on that for a second. If you do not accept the, if you are not part of the accepted narrative handed to us by press outlets and tech giants, you are the equivalent of a soldier who finds himself behind enemy lines. So act accordingly. Here's the sick thing. While people I know lose their profiles and followings due to political differences, pedophiles and human traffickers can operate on the platform with impunity. We are witnessing the same manifestation of incentive here that we see law enforcement branches engage in on a daily basis. So the corollary here is it's a lot easier to pay attention to political thought you disagree with than it is to actually face a real evil like child sex trafficking. How about let's just keep it with that. How about how about the fact that it is evil? It is easier. It is evil. It is evil that these people and these tech giants are more concerned with political differences than they are with human trafficking. And it is evidence, by the way, that these are not private companies in the way that some libertarians would conceptualize it. And, and some on the left are now trying to you know, pragmatically argue because they feel like it, it makes their case. It is not the case that these places are acting as, uh, acting as private businesses. Because I'll tell you what, if my business, if I learned that it was my, in my business that I was supporting something like this, you think I would do business with that person anymore? Hell no. But if I was working in a government capacity, you know, the government has worked with, just so you understand, the federal government of the United States has worked with drug traffickers, worked with human traffickers, worked with, worked with all the worst kinds of people in the world in the name of freedom. In your name, in fact, and you, your name is the American taxpayer. So it doesn't surprise me at all that Twitter is going to let evil people operate on their platform and take out dudes who make jokes. Evil as an, as an abstraction is not difficult to face. Every ideology has some variance of morality associated with it. And as a consequence, most have some idea of what is good and some idea of what is evil by contrast. 
It's when evil moves from the hypothetical to the physical that causes cognitive dissonance to rear its ugly head. Consider the idea of Stockholm syndrome or what Eliza referred to as a trauma bond in the interview. We know it is possible for an otherwise rational individual to feel a positive emotion towards an evil actor in their life. This is what I mean when I say it's difficult for many people to look evil in the face, especially when they have some kind of bond with the person, idea, or institution perpetrating the evil. You don't have to be a practicing Christian to understand the metaphorical significance of the devil's greatest trick. If you weren't aware, the devil's greatest trick is convincing the world he doesn't exist. There are some schools of thought that explicitly say there is no evil in the world. Others would imply that even the worst actor is a victim of circumstance. And that's actually what usually it's not that people don't think that there is evil in the world, because what would be evil in such in, in an ideology or a school of thought that thinks that um, what is evil in a school of thought that only that thinks that there is no evil, only a victim of circumstance is to think that that is evil, that those are evil actions. Does that make sense? So the person who would condemn a criminal for murdering somebody is evil in the context of a school of thought that thinks that there is no, there are no bad people, only victims of circumstance. With these sorts of ideas animating people in power, and they do, it's no wonder that Twitter would focus on political censorship and let human traffickers go free. So shout out to Eliza. Um, I, first introduction to her, she seems like a lovely young woman. Um, and very, very brave as somebody who was trafficked and um, is willing to put herself out there. So I, I had a brief interaction with her on Twitter. Thank you again uh, if you're listening to this. And um, I wish you nothing but success in your endeavors. Well, that's going to do it for the first part of today's show. Make sure you go to binawake.com and subscribe with your email. And I will be back next week with four or five great pieces of content for us to go through. And uh, yeah, make sure, you know, remember, if we fear what we do not understand, the answer must be to understand everything. And moreover, you can go and follow me on places like Twitter and Instagram, but really just go and saw that. I'm, bah, 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 bah. I am, <laughs> I am, I'm trying to make sure that I can just get the outro music to play why because this makes it a lot easier in post for me to actually take out this great episode we're not done stay tuned Make sure you follow me at the LB Moniz. If you like what you heard today, go to beenawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Moniz, and I am not.